Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, further explorations of religion and the law. We air part one of our interview with attorney and author John Mauck whose work helped pave the way for a federal statute on religious land use. Later on the broadcast, our producer-at-large, Natasha Alford, explores the surprising eruptions of faith to be found in the Netflix breakout hit series, Orange is the New Black. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is author and attorney John Mauck. Mr. Mauck has practiced law for over 30 years and is the author of Paul on Trial, the Book of Acts as a Defense of Christianity. In his law practice, he has often represented churches and ministries in the Chicago area regarding religious land use. In 1998, John Mauck was invited to testify before a congressional subcommittee on church zoning issues. His work in this area was instrumental in the drafting of Our Lupa, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act of the year 2000. John Malk, welcome to Things Not Seen. It's good to be here, Dave. Well, to start off, I wonder if you'd be willing to explain briefly to our listeners which parts of the First Amendment apply specifically to religion. Well, the First Amendment has, has two clauses that are explicitly religion, but when you get to land use and religious land use, it's really free exercise and establishment, but it's also a matter of free speech and freedom of association. So having a place where worshipers can come together or people of the same faith can come together and discuss issues and, and talk about God and serve God really uh, is at the core of the First Amendment, four different provisions of the First Amendment, freedom of association, free speech, freedom of religion, and establishment are all implicated. So if I'm hearing you correctly, the, the two clauses of the First Amendment that we oftentimes associate explicitly with uh, religious practice, the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause, those are included in religious land use. But when we talk about that issue, we're also talking about speech, we're talking about association, that there's a much wider sweep that's caught up in that. Yes. There's a, there's a tension in the First Amendment sometimes between the, the notion of establishment of religion by the state and free exercise of religion by religious minority groups. When we talk about something like the, the use of space for religious practice, do you see those tensions playing out in terms of uh, uh, governmental authority, either pro or against religion, versus people's desire to use spaces for religious purposes? Oh, absolutely. All the time, rights are bumping up against other rights, and municipal interests in terms of controlling land use are often infringing on the ability of groups to freely come together and meet. And particularly, this impacts new religious groups 
and minority religions. The Catholics or Presbyterians mostly have buildings and facilities set up in every, in every community, but the, but the Buddhists or the fast-growing Hispanic congregations or Korean congregations are pretty much shut out, and there isn't much sensitivity in many communities to the needs of these fast-growing groups. And why do you think that is? Why do you think that there is the, the resistance to the acceptance of new religious groups in terms of uh, geographic land use? Yeah, so some of it's just ignorance, and some of it is uh, uh, the thought that religious groups don't contribute money. And that's, that's, another, that's another form of ignorance. Uh, really, one of the hot buttons uh, to me in this whole issue is the, is the poor and the minority groups which are helping in their communities. You think of a, an Hispanic congregation, maybe of 20 or 30 people that's formed of Mexican immigrants, and they're helping people integrate into our society, find jobs, maybe learn, learn English, uh, find a place to live. Uh, get uh, a proper legalization. There are all, of, all of these things that are happening in storefront churches, uh, helping families, helping frightened teenagers, keeping them off of the streets, our governmental authorities are pretty ignorant about. They're, they're big on welfare, on public education, on police, on, uh, on drug counseling, but there's sort of a paternalistic... Uh, attitude by government that we're going to help the poor, but when the poor are trying to empower themselves, and the storefront church and the small church is one of the primary means for the little people to come together and be somebody and be more than just a person and work together cooperatively and help change their community through faith and through all the good works that they do, why should government be uh, pushing them around and not cooperating with them? I, Basically, I think it's ignorance. Sometimes it's just paternalism. So you've used this phrase uh, a couple of times, storefront churches. I wonder if you'd tell our listeners what you mean by that term. When we say storefront church, what are we, what are we to think of? Uh, well, typically a storefront church is uh, a church that's moved into a financially obsolete business uh, in the inner city which nobody wants to rent anymore because it doesn't have parking or there's not enough commercial traffic or the, the community is run down. And often churches uh, that can't afford to build a cathedral will move in and, and rent for a few hundred dollars a month. This is what they can afford so 15, 20, 30 people can get together. And that's what I mean about the poorest of the poor are often coming together to serve each other and to minister to the to the community <clears throat> but in a larger sense a storefront is is symbolic of any new church that's kind of trying to grow uh, grow up and, and 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 get their own place so they may they may want to move into a, a shopping center that has a lot of vacancies or it may be just immigrants like the Koreans. Uh, about 30 years ago, there was one Korean church in Chicago. Now there's an estimated 400 of those as Koreans have tended to migrate uh, to the Chicago area and then they need a place to, to set up their churches and there's no place to build because everything's built up except in the very outlying communities. 
Now, when, when we use this phrase, new religious movements, that you used a moment ago, are we speaking simply about um, small immigrant Christian churches, like you meant, or are we talking about non-Christian practitioners as well? Oh, of course, we're talking about non-Christians as well, um, Muslims, uh, uh, Hindus, uh, Buddhists, uh, almost every religion, uh, one of the key components of it is people coming together and meeting together to talk, to worship, to pray. Well, for our listeners to begin to understand your work and the events that led to the passage of ARLUPA, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, we need to start to look back to the history of some laws and legal decisions. And one place to start might be with a 1990 court case uh, called Employment Division v. Smith. And I'm wondering if you'd give us a brief overview of what happened in that case. What was happening in America, uh, David, is that there was a proliferation of religions, and the Supreme Court had had even decided that each person can have your their own religion. You didn't have to belong to an established church, and so the free exercise of religion uh, protected broader and broader uh, areas of personal belief and conduct. But by when it, that happened, it also ended up with more and more conflict between laws and what people believe. Almost any law would offend somebody's religion since there's so many different uh, faiths or ways of interpreting our faith. So the Supreme Court said, we've got to draw a line here and we're going to change the way we interpret the Constitution because of the change in society. And so we're going to be much stricter on, on, on religion knocking out uh, governmental laws, and Employment Division versus Smith was was a, a decision that was uh, contrary to common sense in a lot of people's minds. A uh, a drug counselors two drug counselors were denied unemployment uh, compensation because they were smoking peyote, <laughs> and these guys are supposed to be drug counselors helping people, you see. But uh, peyote was part of their faith. And the Supreme Court said, no, they don't get unemployment compensation because we want neutral laws, uh, and they're not targeted at religion per se. They're enforceable. So this created uh, an uproar, an upheaval, as people saw that this was a way that government might restrict religious freedom. So if I'm hearing you correctly, the decision in 1990 was if we have a law that applies neutrally to all citizens— we can't, uh, we, we don't recognize a religious exemption to that law. Have I heard you correctly? Well, not, not quite. Okay. Uh, if it's neutrally and generally applicable, it will be presumed valid. And to overcome that, the, uh, the, there are narrow, narrow exceptions to overcoming that. So when the Supreme Court handed down that decision in Employment Division v. Smith, some interpreted that basically as stripping individual religious protections away. And I'm wondering... Uh, Congress reacted to that, and how did Congress react? Well, Congress passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which was designed basically to overrule the Supreme Court decision in Employment Division versus Smith. However, the Supreme Court had the last word, and and when the case went uh, a case went back up to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court said, "No, you can't uh, overrule our decisions." 
and uh, RIFRA was declared invalid except as applied to the federal government. The main thrust of RIFRA uh, affecting the states was invalidated, but RIFRA is still good law as regarding the federal government as we've seen in the Hobby Lobby case, so it's still out there. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're just joining us, our guest is John Mauck, uh, an attorney who played a key role in the law known as ARLUPA, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with John Mauck, author of the book Paul on Trial and an attorney who specializes in religious land use issues. Mauck's work in the 1990s was a cornerstone of the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, also known as ARLUPA, which became law in the year 2000. So just to make sure that I've got the timeline correct, uh, there were a variety of, of Supreme Court cases prior to 1990, but in 1990, Employment Division versus Smith created a precedent where neutral and generally applicable law was assumed to apply uh, in the face of religious exemptions. Congress tried to react to that by passing RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and the Supreme Court then judged RIFRA to be null and void at the level of the states, although it still applies at the federal level. You should be a lawyer. You got it. Well, tell my mother <laughs> that, yes. <laughs> so, did RIFRA actually solve the problems that were posed by Employment Division versus Smith, or did it raise some problems on its own? Well, it would it would have solved the problems if it if it had been held to be constitutional. But since it was it was ruled unconstitutional, uh, lawyers and those who were advocates for religious groups went back to the drawing boards and say, as we read this opinion, what can we do legislatively? To to try and still protect our our religious rights and and uh, keep the Supreme Court from overruling us, so that's where Relupa was born. And by Relupa, just so that listeners know, we're talking about the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act. Is that correct? Yes. And and that's a that's a piece of legislation that that comes partly out of the area where you practice law, and that is the area of religious land use. So when we, when we talk about religious land use, what specifically do we mean by that term? We mean having the right to own or rent a place where people can come together and meet uh, for worship and other religious exercise, particularly in face of the zoning laws, which in almost every community in America sharply restrict uh, what uh, certain buildings can be used for. Now, I come from the South, and the way that we've always heard this is that if you have a church in a, in a neighborhood, you can't uh, put a bar or uh, a liquor store near that church because of the blue laws. But if I'm hearing you correctly, that also applies to churches and to other religious 
buildings that zoning and land use laws might restrict churches from going into certain areas as well. Do, have I heard you correctly? Well, yes, and it's really much more than that. Over the past uh, 100 years, communities have enacted land use laws, and each decade they re- review them, and they've never gotten less regulatory. They've always gotten more regulatory. So everything from from housing to uh, multiple family housing, manufacturing, uh, different commercial uses, uh, some communities regulate them uh, to a very uh, minute degree. And it's, it's about the mentality that uh, the majority of people think through their elective representatives, what's best for you to use your land for. Why in the world would anyone want to make it hard for a religious group to put a house of worship or a mosque or a synagogue or an ashram or a temple in a community? Well, there's there's quite a few reasons. <laughs> uh, the The given reasons are uh, if it's in a if it's in a neighborhood, a residential area, or oh, too much traffic, it's going to bother us. If it's in a commercial area, it's like uh, not enough traffic. Uh, they're only out operating a couple days a week, and it interrupts the commercial continuity. So, in those broader senses, everybody's pointing to the other guy and say, "Move over, <laughs> move over to the other place." But there's also uh, racial prejudice. Uh, these people have a different color. There's economic uh, uh, prejudice. Uh, these people don't have the same income level as ours. There's ignorance. These people speak in tongues. And uh, uh, who knows how crazy that may be. And then from a believer's point of view, there's also spiritual warfare, by which we mean that there are unseen forces, uh, a God by his spirit operating on behalf of his people, and uh, demons and Satan that don't want the light and don't want people to be able to hear the message so they can decide for themselves. So if I'm hearing you correctly, there's, there are economic factors, there are political factors, there are ignorance factors, and from a believer's standpoint, there are also deeply spiritual factors involved in religious land use restrictions. Yes, and I forgot taxes. <laughs> so tell us about taxes. <laughs> and and, and, and uh, to, to governments, the uh, taxes matter a lot, and if uh, religious groups are tax-exempt, no, no sales tax, no real estate tax— Many secular thinking people say, what good are they? Mm. And so what, what, what benefit, what value do religious organizations and their buildings bring to communities? So let's, let's hear the opposite side. We've, we've heard why we might want to restrict religious land use. What good does religious land use bring to a community? Well, there have been some recent studies, actually, uh, uh, one out of the University of Pennsylvania that shows that the average church really saves the community millions of dollars, depending on the size of the church. The bigger the church, the more the savings through saved marriages, through keeping children out of uh, jail and, and uh, juvenile delinquents from uh, committing crimes uh, through social programs that are helping feed the hungry and, and uh, house the homeless. Uh, many collateral uh, benefits besides the spiritual benefit to the people themselves who are learning about God and, and loving God and being able to, to live their lives. 
Well, for our listeners to begin to understand your work and the events that led to the passage of our LUPA, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, we need to start to look back to the history of some laws and legal decisions. And one place to start might be with a 1990 court case uh, called Employment Division v. Smith, which some interpreted as stripping individuals of their religious rights. Congress reacted by passing the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, RIFRA. The Supreme Court then basically took the fangs out of RIFRA at the state level, but left it as good law at the federal level. And the response then was Congress looking for some way to salvage a protection of religious freedoms at the state level. And do I have it correct that they that they they lit upon religious land use as the way to salvage religious freedoms at the state level? Well, the the two aspects that they were able to put together in RELUPA, land use and Institutionalized Persons Act, and those were the two sort of uh, cutouts that uh, Congress decided uh, would pass constitutional muster. Now, you had been doing work in religious land use, but had you intended to have your work become the model for this law with Arlupa, or what was what were the circumstances that led to your work in religious land use being a key part of Arlupa? Well, uh, I, I didn't know where, where God was going when we started CLUB. Mm-hmm. Uh, and CLUB is the, is the Civil Liberties for Urban Believers. Yes, yes. And, and, and Consortium of Inner City Churches. But when we had this crisis with uh, RIFRA being declared unconstitutional and uh, people got together and said, how can we change this, I had enough land use uh, a savvy and experience, and said, "Here's a couple things we can do. We need a we need a land use law. We can be part of a broader law or or not. And a couple of the key features of that are that churches have to be treated at least as well as all the secular assemblies. So we had zoning codes that were allowing community centers and clubs and and lodges and theaters and all sorts of assembly uses, but not if they were for religious purposes. And to that degree, we said the government's overstepping its bounds because it's regulating what people are talking about and their religious exercise, not what the land is used for. So that was one area. The other area was most communities, maybe 50, 60 percent, didn't have any area within the community where you could freely put a church you had to, you had either zones where they weren't allowed at all or zones where, well, we'll let you have it if we think it's okay at this particular building. This type of overregulation meant there was no freedom to have a church in a particular community. You had to get permission, and the permission was often denied. And, of course, people wouldn't say we're denying you because you're African American or we're denying you because you're Hindu. They would just say, you're not producing taxes, so we're not going not to do it. So we needed to free that up, and, and RELUPA requires that every community have at least one zone where religious groups can freely go without government approval. So if I'm hearing you correctly, what you were observing at the civic level was a type of discrimination that sometimes would be racial, sometimes would be economic, sometimes would be religious, but it would be it would be couched altogether as economic discrimination. You're not contributing to the tax base, but the practical result would be 
uh, a racial exclusion or an exclusion of a type of religious practice that they didn't like. Yeah, that's a practical result. I mean, the reality of human motivation, you can't uh, uh, break that down fully. You can suspect that it may be racial, but uh, people have amalgam of, of motivations, and there may be many people making the decisions on the zoning board or on the city council. Some prejudicial, some economic, some just confused, some I don't want my community to change, and some subconscious. I'm not prejudiced against anybody. It's just these folks aren't our folks. <laughs> and, you know, we do have our subconscious prejudices. So this was all about giving freedom as a practical matter to more people to come together and associate and, 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 and set up their churches and, and flourish in that way. If you're just joining us, our guest is John Mauck, an attorney who played a key role in the law known as Arlupa. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We'll be back in a moment. Hello, listeners. I just wanted to let you know about a new podcast that I'm launching with Emily Grassley from the Field Museum. It's called Divides Aside, and it's science and faith in conversation. This podcast is about laying down differences and finding new ways to understand each other. In these deeply personal conversations, me and Emily talk about our ways of seeing the world and why they, they so often come into conflict and why we so often disagree. But as the episodes unfold, suspicion gives way to a growing friendship. Listeners get a chance to glimpse the difficulties and rewards that come when we put our divides aside. You can listen to it on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at Divides Aside and on Facebook.com, also at Divides Aside. Please do listen in. We'd love to get your feedback. We'd love to learn how to do this better. And we'd love to share this conversation with you. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is author and attorney John Mauck. Mr. Mauck has practiced law for over 30 years and is the author of Paul on Trial, the book of Acts as a Defense of Christianity. In his law practice, he has often represented churches and ministries in the Chicago area regarding religious land use. I wonder, would you be willing to give us some examples of of religious land use restriction either here in Chicago or at the national level where there has been a, a real conflict over a group wanting to use a space for a certain purpose and there there being real pushback from either from the community or from government? We have an organization in Chicago called Civil Liberties for Urban Believers. The acronym is CLUB. And that was formed in the early 90s when the city of Chicago decided to do a sweep of the city and shut down storefront churches that were not permitted or, or, if you will, unlicensed because the government was taking the position, we have a right to say whether you can use this building to worship or not. And so uh, they were picking these off one at a time and shutting these churches down, getting court orders. Uh, but then they decided to start doing sweeps, and particularly on Ashland Avenue and Western Avenue on the south side, uh, they did a whole bunch of them, of them 
at one time, and we happened to get four or five clients at one time, and I was able to tell these folks, you can't afford to fight City Hall by yourself, but let's get together and form an organization so that we can spread the cost around and, and support each other. And we were able to save many of those churches from being shut down because we were able to take effective legal action. But most importantly, we were able to get RELUPA enacted. And, and that wasn't because of court decisions. That was because of the prayers of the people uh, in this club organization. When I'm talking about people, I mean African-American inner-city people, Hispanic inner-city people, and uh, Caucasian inner-city or blue-collar uh, Chicago people uh, came together to seek prayer because the Religious Land Use Act uh, was bottled up in Congress. It was going nowhere. It was, it was stuck. And we had a series of prayer meetings, May, June, uh, April, May, and June, uh, uh, saying, God, please move this legislation. Now, these were extraordinary prayer meetings because the people praying didn't know much about law. Some of them didn't even speak English. We had to translate into Spanish, but they knew God, and, and they were fervent. And some were, you know, these are Pentecostal churches, all three of them, where we had these prayer meetings. And uh, there were tears and imploring God, saying we need to be free to share the message with other people about how Jesus loves them and can save them and change their lives because people just aren't hearing the message or don't have the opportunity. So out of those prayer meetings, I believe a miracle occurred because one month after those prayer meetings ended, I called the folks in Washington and said, what's happening with the Religious Land Use Act? And I uh, talked to some rather conservative uh, uh, Christian evangelicals there who aren't like the Pentecostals. <laughs> they don't shout and they don't use miracles. And these guys on the phone said, God did a miracle. <laughs> the Religious Land Use Act became law. And I was utterly stunned because uh, th this thing had been bottled up for, uh, for so long and the impeachment trial had stopped everything with the Clinton impeachment. And, and I said, well, how did this miracle occur? And they said, well, it it passed the Senate on a procedural vote, and it was going to go then into committee, and the, the communities were lined up. The municipal interests didn't want this to pass because it was an infringement on, on their ability to control. And, and so they were holding up everything. But it was the day before Congress was going to recess for the summer, and after the House I mean, excuse me, after the Senate passed the bill by uh, voice vote, uh, the sponsor from the House came in uh, to the Senate sponsor and said, the House is still in session. Why don't we take this bill over to the House? And they did. And the House was just uh, tidying up matters and about to adjourn. And so the sponsor said, uh, Mr. Speaker, we have a bill that's just been passed, the Religious Land Use Act, uh, 
and Institutionalized Persons Act uh, by the Senate by unanimous consent. I move for unanimous consent of this bill from the House of Representatives. Well, normally the municipal interests would have somebody, anybody just stand up and say, I object. And if anybody objects, then it goes through this long, lengthy process uh, where basically they strangle the baby in the crib in committee <laughs> and gut it. But nobody said anything. So the Speaker of the House said, is there any objection? Hearing none, he brought the gavel down and, and he said approved. So it passed both houses of Congress unanimously on one day. And that was major legislation. And that is a miracle of God working through our system. President Clinton subsequently signed the law and it's changed much. If you're just joining us, our guest today is John Mauck, who played a key role in the law known as ARLUPA, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If I can back up for just a moment, I want to make sure that I have the timeline clear here. So taking as, as one arbitrary starting point, Employment Division versus Smith, which some interpreted as stripping individuals of their religious rights, Congress reacted by passing the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, RIFRA. The Supreme Court then basically took the fangs out of RIFRA at the state level, but left it as good law at the federal level. And the response then was Congress looking for some way to salvage a protection of religious freedoms at the state level. And do I have it correct that they that they they lit upon religious land use as the way to salvage religious freedoms at the state level? Well, the the two aspects that they were able to put together in RELUPA, land use and Institutionalized Persons Act. Mm -hmm. So the law also protects those who are in prison mm -hmm. and gives them uh, some protection concerning the ability to exercise their faith even though they're incarcerated. So those two specific areas, land use and institutionalized persons protections, are, are the subject of, of RELUPA. And those were the two sort of uh, cutouts that uh, Congress decided uh, would pass constitutional muster. So if I'm, if I'm hearing you, you were doing this work in the Chicago area in the middle and late 90s. You were yes. invited to testify before Congress. Yes. And that testimony became a seed kernel for this national law, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act. Yes. But if I'm, if I'm hearing the timeline correctly, you testified before Congress, and then you went back to your business in Chicago, and you didn't know that these wheels were turning in the legislature, or did you? The wheel, I knew the wheels weren't turning. Oh, there you go. Okay. <laughs> I, I knew it was bottled up, and uh, the municipalities didn't want it to pass, and so it, it was going nowhere. And that's, that's when uh, Theodore Wilkinson, who was pastor and, and chairman of the club group, called for prayer. So going back to the prayer story, that's when the prayer began. It was after the legislation was tabled for about two years, and it was just going nowhere. And, and we believe that prayer moved God's hand, and God, by his spirit, touched people, and it became law in one day. So you had, you had given a testimony before Congress— Congress had taken up part of that testimony as a seed kernel for ARLUPA, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, 
It then got resisted by the, the municipalities. It had stalled in moving forward. And then local pastors and other local believers began calling for prayer meetings. And if I'm hearing you correctly, these prayer meetings were were uh, across racial and economic lines. They were largely Pentecostals, but they were they were fervently believing in the power of prayer. There were three three prayer meetings specifically for this purpose, at, at which I had to get up and explain what we were praying for. And there would be 80, 100 people there uh, who were unfamiliar with with the legal system, and then, as I said before, even even with English in, in many cases, and say, this is why we're here on a Wednesday night, three Wednesday nights in three different churches, and we had those specific, specific prayer meetings. So I'd never been to a prayer meeting like that before, where there was one really specific purpose, and you had all these people who weren't directly affected, but they were moved by God, and somehow the, the this is how God worked through it, this circumstance. And if I'm hearing you correctly, you attribute the power of those three prayer meetings to the what you and others have called the mirac- the miraculous passage of this of this stalled law on religious land use into national law in one day. Yes. And <laughs> and have you ever heard of Congress being unanimous about anything, Dave? <laughs> I, I certainly not in in the last two sessions of Congress, so I, I I will tip my hat to the to the miracle working. This is things not seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is author and attorney John Mauk. Mr. Mauk has practiced law for over thirty years and is the author of Paul on Trial: The Book of Acts as a Defense of Christianity. In his law practice, he has often represented churches and ministries in the Chicago area regarding religious land use. In 1998, John Malk was invited to testify before a congressional subcommittee on church zoning issues. His work in this area was instrumental in the drafting of RLUPA, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act of the year 2000. Earlier in the program, we talked about advertising, but there are ways to support things not seen even if you don't have anything to sell. I just wanted to take a moment and give a quick shout out and thank you to our Patreon supporters. Now, if you don't know what this platform is, it's a way for you to regularly give contributions that support our work every time that we release a new episode. It costs you just a little bit, like maybe the cost of a latte a month, maybe a dollar an episode, but it adds up because it aggregates with all the other people and ends up being a nice sum for us. Many of you have stepped up. We've only been doing this for a few weeks, but already the numbers are there, and I appreciate it so much. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, you can do it very easily. Just go to patreon.com. That's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash notseenradio. Thank you always for listening, and thank you especially for your support. We really do appreciate it. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with John Mauk, author of the book Paul on Trial. Mr. Mauk is an attorney who specializes in religious land use issues. Mauk's work in the 1990s was a cornerstone of the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, also known as ARLUPA, which became law in the year 2000. In 1998, John Mauk was invited to testify before a congressional subcommittee on church zoning issues. His work in this area was instrumental in the drafting of ARLUPA, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act of the year 2000. 
Well, you were working in the late 90, 1990s, and our LUPA became law in 2000. And I'm wondering, in the 14 or 15 years since its passage, what has been the positive impact of our LUPA? Well, we, we've, we've seen many positive impacts, uh, particularly in new churches being able to start. Uh, it's taken a while, but many communities have rewritten their zoning codes to bring them up to date to the constitutional and federal uh, requirements. And so uh, and now I can look at a, a zoning map of a particular city and see zones where churches are actually freely allowed. So we like to think that there are probably thousands of groups that have been able to establish their meeting places or buy buildings and uh, re rehab the old grocery store or or, uh, or a shopping center and, and, and put in a place of worship that wouldn't have been allowed to do that in the past. Of course, there's no way to measure exactly how many. There's still a lot of problems and there's still a lot of feeling uh, among those who aren't sensitive to uh, religious use that we don't really need these uses, that they're a drag on the community. So there's still a lot of resistance and when we have uh, special use applications or permit processing, we still have those problems. But now we're able to cite court cases and cite the Religious Land Use Act uh, to help influence the particular uh, zoning board, or we can go to court. And uh, we have gone to court. We haven't won all of our cases. It's not an unlimited right, but it uh, is certainly one that's much better established in the judicial mind and in the social mind. Prior to RELUPA, people wondered whether the right to use a building for worship was part of free exercise. And many courts had said, no, I mean, everybody needs a building and it's nothing free exercise about it. But with RELUPA and with court decisions, it's become pretty firmly ingrained that this is integral to having the right to free exercise of religion, that it's the right to get together, the right to associate, and the right to speak that all come together in having a place to meet. So that's the major change in the, in the paradigm. Well, you, you've mentioned that there were some legal challenges over the last 15 years to Arlupa. Uh, could you give us any examples of, of particular cases where, where that challenge has, has come up for religious land use? Yeah, one, one of the... Uh, one of the major remaining issues is size of religious assembly. The zoning codes are pretty much still one size fits all, and they will have a zoning code that says churches are in these areas and these areas alone, not recognizing that churches come in all sizes and flavors. It may be uh, seven uh, people Baha'i meeting in an apartment and they meet for study and, and prayer and maybe they go to 10 or 12. Or it may be a group that's renting the local high school gym on Sundays. Or it may be a mega church that really needs a whole bunch of acres. And because these zoning codes are one size fit all, uh, we've particularly having problems with small churches 
We have a case right now in federal court from a meditation group from Korea called MAUM, M-A-U-M. And they meet to meditate uh, once a week or two, three times a week in small groups, maybe seven or eight people. And, and they bought a house in Lake Forest and they wanted to worship there. But Lake Forest zoning code and Lake County zoning code, I should say it's unincorporated Lake County, in um, Lake Forest in Lake County, uh, they said you can't have your church there even though it cons it's uh, at most seven or eight people at one time uh, meditating. So we need, we need to push against these codes that aren't size specific and uh, that ends up uh, hurting a lot of the small groups that we talked about. We're a decade and a half past the uh, the passage of our LUPA, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, and I'm wondering if you have any, looking back now, any favorite memories from that process of getting the the act passed that you'd care to share? Well, <laughs> those, those those prayer meetings were probably my 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 favorite, uh, especially going to the Hispanic group, which was so enthusiastic. And I don't speak Spanish, but I had an interpreter. And uh, I couldn't tell as people were shouting and praying and crying and, and the band playing, by the way, this is the prayer meeting with the band going on, uh, whether they're speaking in tongues or speaking in Spanish. <laughs> but it was, a lot, it was a lot of fun to see the love and, and, and concern that, uh, that people had, not just for themselves, but for other believers and for, and for those who were not believers um, so that they could have the opportunity to hear the message, too. If I'm hearing correctly what you've said in the broad sweep of this interview, you explicitly as a firm identify as followers of Jesus and as a religious law firm, but that has not led you to exclusively represent Christians or Jesus followers, but in, in your religious land use litigation, it sounds like you have represented all different types of religious practice. Is that correct? Yes, it's mostly Christians because that's who we are connected with, and that's the majority of people in the U.S. But we've represented Muslims. We had a big federal case in Morton Grove, which we eventually won to allow a mosque to be built there and represented Hindus and Eastern religions. Our feeling is that everyone should be free to pursue the truth, and we don't want to have a situation where we're like some foreign countries that don't allow churches to be built. We think everybody should be allowed to pursue their view of truth and hear the messages of the others. And then people can sort out for themselves what they think is real and, and, uh, and where they want to direct their own lives. Well, John Malk, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Our guest today has been author and attorney John Mauck. Mr. Mauck has practiced law for over 30 years and is the author of Paul on Trial, The Book of Acts as a Defense of Christianity. In his law practice, he has often represented churches and ministries in the Chicago area regarding religious land use. In 1998, John Mauck was invited to testify before a congressional subcommittee on church zoning issues. His work in this area was instrumental in the drafting of ARLUPA, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act of 2000. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. 
We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ at their Navy Pier Studios overlooking Lake Michigan. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. Mary Gaffney engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and learn more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.